Well, first of all, I'd like to welcome those of you who might be listening in to our podcast this morning, um, joining in the second in a series of five on the doctrine of the atonement. That is a price reconciling work of forgiveness of sin and salvation for us upon the cross. Again this week, I am joined by uh, special guest, Dr. Steve Paulson, professor extraordinaire at Luther House, a study here in Sioux Falls, along with my esteemed nephew, Nick Christofferson, who is off to law school at Wake Forest this fall. And Nick, I think it's particularly timely, propitious, should I say, that this first atonement theory uh, or interpretation is very juridical. That is to say, it has strong uh, emphasis on um, kind of a vibe, if you will, from uh, the courtroom. So this this will be kind of right up your alley as you try to wed uh, theology, political science, and jurisprudence in your life. So welcome to both of you today. And before we begin, I just want to lay out um, a few things in three or four minutes that kind of set the stage. Um, there are basically three fundamental ways in which the Christian church has interpreted um, the atoning work of Christ down through the centuries. Uh, the first has been referenced as the objective or Latin view, which we'll be looking at today. The second is the subjective or humanistic view, which we'll talk about next week. And the third is the classic view, uh, which many would argue is that of, of Luther's, although Luther draws upon uh, several, as Dr. Paulson will allude to later, sometimes re referenced as the Christus Victor uh, motif or interpretation. The second point I'd like to make um, in this brief historical analysis is that we keep in mind that all three of these interpretations uh, of the atonement see themselves as being biblically based. They have a biblical uh, foundation. And then thirdly, or finally, um, you must always remember that Christ did not die for an atonement theory, um, but rather he died for us and, and for uh, his creation, for the world. That is to say, we're talking about um, as Luther would call a theology of the cross, that we take this personally, it's an event, it is for our sake, and not simply about the cross. That is something that is just merely an idea or, shall we say, propositional, it's personal. Uh, these interpretations uh, are then not merely seeking to create a doctrine about atonement, Although I want to say that doctrines are very important in the life of the church because they seek to keep us close to the authority of scripture and um, try to keep us from getting into the weeds of our own uh, particular interpretations that come out of our imagination. As uh, Calvin once said, um, imagination is, is a factory of idols. And um, so it's about uh, about our life as Christ comes to us um, and it is a once and for all work as 
Paul writes in Romans 6, or again, and we'll find this in Hebrews 10, 10, or 1 Peter 3, 18. Now, um, let me just say something about this oldest interpretation as we step into it today. Uh, what I would like to say, you might use the phrase that this costs Christ. The focus here is what Christ uh, is doing for us upon the cross and a sense of the objective view here. Uh, it is perhaps the oldest interpretation and referred to as the objective view. And by objective here is meant that God is the object of Christ's atoning work upon the cross and that humanity is reconciled through Christ's vicarious satisfaction. That is what he does for us in our place. And I think it's a, an important phrase for us to hold on to uh, throughout our conversation. This uh, satisfaction that is made to God, again, as the object for this sense of God's justice. So here comes this legal feel that we have here. And indeed, as referenced in our first podcast by Dr. Paulson, this objective Latin interpretation is arguably the closest thing to a dogma of the atonement, short of any councils or official creedal formulations that we have in the West, um, we might refer to, as we did last time, to the council uh, at Nicaea in 325, where they wanted to make it very clear that in Christ we have one who's come to us as true God and true man. And... Um, that is what we call classically Christology. Here we're talking today and the next few weeks about soteriology or the work of Christ. And um, so let me lay out what is basically the argument here from this objective viewpoint that is kind of reminiscent of a penitential uh, juridical system from the courtroom. Um, its root idea is that Christ, as the God-man, must make a sacrifice or payment to satisfy, here's that word again, satisfaction for God's justice. So it's highly rationalistic. It's rather this kind of quid pro quo interpretation from the uh, courtroom. And to lay out the argument, the first premise, and those of you who are listening in, if you want to see this laid out, you'll find it in the, uh, in the study notes that you can download off our website. So the first premise would go something like this. Only man ought to make satisfaction for sin, but we can't. So second premise is only God can make the infinite satisfaction and Anselm loves to use this word necessary. This is part of the necessary reasoning, a necessary reason. Um, in St. Paul's language, he uses a little Greek word, day, uh, delta, epsilon, iota, which means it is necessary. So, but God ought not make this satisfaction because God is under no just obligation to do so. So finally, here's the, the therefore of the conclusion, only the God-man, that is Christ, 
can and ought to pay the price who make satisfaction to God's justice. So that is the argument of St. Anselm that began back with an attorney in the third century in Rome named Tertullian. And it comes into fruition in, I would say about the mid 11th century. And uh, so Dr. Paulson, let me begin by asking you what you see as some of the particular uh, strengths of this interpretation or motif um, and some of the weaknesses that are here in this Latin or uh, objective view. Well, if we go back to uh, the, the uh, way that this discussion began, not just in the last podcast, but <clears throat> uh, John, you had had us all uh, meeting with a, uh, a group of lawyers and uh, in some cases uh, judges and even a justice. Um, the, the, uh, the issue that kept coming up there was that everyone who was a lawyer looking at the situation with Jesus dying on the cross came to the conclusion that it was, um, that uh, he, he was an innocent man who was nevertheless uh, killed. Yeah. And so the big question is, how could this possibly happen? How can you get an innocent man killed well, you can go back in history, as any lawyer might, and say, well, occasionally this happens. The law fails. Uh, an innocent man actually does uh, come up um, uh, in some way or another through a judicial system, um, even if the system was abused, misused, broken, or something, uh, that it wasn't used properly either by Rome or by uh, by the Jewish Sanhedrin, or however you might put it. You might also look at, uh, uh, at famous examples of people who have been uh, punished wrongly under the law. The most famous uh, for us is Socrates, and um, Plato uh, rose up his student uh, in opposition to the fact that this great man was nevertheless uh, punished by illegal means. And uh, people have always gone back to try to figure out um, if the same sort of thing could be said about Jesus. And then all of this falls down theologically when we say, but we understand that God oversees everything in the world, especially his son, uh, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So then the question becomes, how would God let this happen? It's one thing to say that occasionally uh, a legal system is built up and fails and a, an innocent man is punished. Um, but uh, it's another thing to say theologically that somehow God is watching over all of this and not only allows it to happen, but now here's Anselm, uh, the famous uh, creator of this particular theory of uh, what what it means for God uh, to or for Jesus Christ to die on the cross and specifically as you pointed out the word he likes to use is that it was necessary right that somehow this thing was necessary even though it was a miscarriage of justice and then the question is 
how can you possibly say that God who oversees all things allows this to happen, causes it to happen, or now he, he even says uh, it was necessary uh, for God, not just uh, on account of human sin, but it was necessary for God to do this. And I have to say, when we took it up with our dear friends, the lawyers, they began to stumble on this particular point because uh, they they knew Jesus was an innocent man, but they could not quite figure out how for God it was necessary, not just for certain criminals it was necessary, or sinful men it was necessary, or a group of people that that uh, that that became hysterical and uh, and put an innocent man on the cross. However, it's described when it, when you come back uh, to God Himself, this becomes a major problem. And Anselm tried to set uh, uh, about explaining how something as terrible as the crucifixion of his own son could be necessary for God. And uh, that's where Anselm really begins. And he tries to uh, argue uh, a logical necessity that required this which was not simply an, a miscarriage of justice, that would be an injustice, but that from God's perspective, it was somehow just. There was justice that was actually being done in this particular matter. And so Anselm steps back one step further from our judges, our justices, and so on, and he starts to say, I can make a case if you want to put it this way, a legal case, he yeah. says a logical case. I can make a logical case that would prove to any reasonable human being who is not already opposed to Jesus Christ, to God, uh, and to rationality itself, I can prove the case that this was necessary for God to maintain justice in the world and he sets out doing it in his famous uh, book, Why God Became Man. And uh, uh, that itself becomes uh, the most uh, notable uh, book uh, in theology on this thing called the Doctrine of the Atonement, where uh, Anselm is going to lay out his answer to that. So that sort of sets the scene for the way he proceeds to do it. And, uh, you know, now we can sit back and start to unpack this. What happened? How did he make his argument? And so on. But that's really what he's trying to do. He's trying to indicate that though an innocent man was crucified in Jesus Christ, it actually brought not injustice into the world, like Socrates' death brought injustice into the world, but nevertheless, uh, uh, but it brought justice according to God. And he says, I can prove it to you. Okay. Um, Nick, if you want to weigh in here too, along with me, uh, Steve, you have used the word uh, making, making a case for, uh, a case for the justice that is implied in this, the, the justice that is a part of, of the nature of God. And, and so I'm going to make a distinction between where I think uh, Anselm is pretty spot on with the logic 
of the argument. Okay, so logically, but theologically, um, I think we need to step back here and get at something I think that he has missed. And he's making an argument based on logic rather than theological. And that is to say, the sense of the necessity that we might use in the Lutheran confessions, uh, other traditions that speak about election. Uh, it is necessary that Christ died or it's part of God's foreordained um, uh, predestined plan of salvation. Um, what, what say thee to that kind of distinction? Well, you are right that what uh, Anselm is interested in doing, and, and anybody who's going to try to make this so-called logical argument, mm -hmm. um, is going to lay out an argument uh, that is legal, purely legal. It's a legal case, and he is going to make his legal argument, and he is now making the argument in the, uh, in, in the court of human opinion, <clears throat> not just uh, not just for any person off the street, but a thinking individual who is going to come in and, and, and learn from this uh, what this God has done, and he is also making another assumption which you're, which you're pointing at. Anselm is making the assumption that God himself is not only the creator of law, and by the way, um, our dear lawyers, uh, uh, of whom one is now going to be Nick, uh, all know that the law is there. And then they say, well, you know, let's just study it. There it is. But underneath all of that is always the question, how did it get there? What, what, what actually produced that? What, what's the source of it? There are various theories that lawyers uh, tend to use. But uh, Anselm is unafraid here. He is, he is going to use a logical argument, but he joins it with theologic. So, John, you might be right in trying to make a distinction there, but what Anselm is doing is trying to say human logic uh, is also, when done properly, the, the logic of God himself, theologic, God's logic. And, uh, and God is the source of the law, and there is a reason that God is the source of the law, and uh, Anselm says it's because God himself is the law, so that the, uh, that the source of the law, God creates law because he is pushing out of himself the things that he himself is, and we actually see it organizing in this world in the form of what we would call justice. And one of the things that's uh, really interesting about uh, Anselm, and we should talk a little bit about how, how this guy developed and why he produced this. Anselm was born, uh, if I remember right, uh, around 1030 or 1033. So he's the 11th century. Uh, he, he, uh, he's an Italian. Uh, which is not immaterial because Italians, as we know, are not what we usually call um, uh, uh, silent, uh, uh, wall-hugging wall creatures. He's going to come out and say boldly 
exactly what he uh, what he thinks. And um, he has a very interesting background and stats with his father and mother. He was not good at the fourth uh, commandment. Um, and uh, nevertheless, uh, Anselm uh, ended up becoming a Benedictine uh, monk. And when he becomes a Benedictine monk, he starts to focus now on uh, the key matter of becoming a monk, monk, which is to take an oath. When you become a monk, you take an oath to God. And here now is his uh, real question. When a monk takes an oath, is that a law that is being forced on him? That would mean that the law is always forcing itself on you and accusing you or pointing a finger at you or oppressing you. Or when you become a monk, have you actually found the trick in the law to keep the law from being a force that is oppressive from the outside, and it now actually becomes something that you self-apply. You apply the law to yourself, and when you apply the law to yourself, you have now found a secret that the law no longer is mean or attacking. That would be like a parent telling a child what to do. That's what he had experienced the law to be, and that's why he didn't like his parents, and that's why he ran away and so on. Uh, and uh, now what he wanted to find out is, is there anything in the law that is not oppressive, that does not force its way onto me, that does not make me do something I don't want to do as a child in relationship to the parents? And he says, ah, I found it. When I became a Benedictine monk, I took an oath and I did it freely. When I took a free oath, I bound myself to that oath. I told myself what it is that uh, was needed to be done. Oh, he himself did not make it up. It was Benedict who had made it up and, uh, and indicated what God supposedly wanted, such as uh, to become celibate, uh, to give up all possessions. This is not insignificant, by the way, because the, this, uh, this objective theory or, or uh, this, uh, this, this so-called Latin theory uh, is really coming out of that, uh, that, that particular matter. And uh, Anselm now says, I think I've found the way uh, to make the law now my deepest desire, my goal, the thing that's going to free me and not oppress me, not to be a harsh father over me, but it is actually now going to be the great joy of my life, and all it took was for me to make an oath to God, which was not required. It was free. I could do it or not do it. But once I had taken the oath, I now was bound to it. But I was bound not in an oppressive way, but in a free way. And so what Anselm is trying to do is find freedom in the law. Now, Nick, as you're going into um, law, I, uh, I, I abjure you. I, I, I am pleading with you. Do not try to find uh, a law that will free you. Uh, and uh, don't turn this into uh, Anselm's particular form. And Anselm is going to say, as I found freedom in a law, which was the oath of Benedict, 
Christ also found freedom in a law, which is going to be the trick of saying how it was that his death on the cross was actually now freedom for Christ and not oppression. The law now, uh, it was discovered uh, to be actually a joyful, desirable thing. The thing that I wanted more than anything else in life, though I had not yet learned it until I became a monk. Nick, do not do that. Uh, <laughs> I'll end uh, the law in that particular way. Nick, I would like to, I would like to piggyback on on something that Dr. Paulson has just said here. And I have a couple of quotes. Uh, the first one is from kind of the person who kind of quarried together all of the kind of pieces of the legal system in Rome at the time in about the fourth century, uh, early church father named Tertullian. And Tertullian made this quote. He says, how absurd it is to leave the penance unperformed and yet expect forgiveness of sin. Now here is the demand of the law I think Dr. Paulson is speaking of. And then some thousand years later, uh, Anselm makes the argument, uh, we either have to have forgiveness here or satisfaction. Um, and so to my way of thinking, is this forgiveness, uh, this sense of um, the penance unperformed on our part, um, speaks about justification by grace. Now, maybe my head is all messed up here, getting into all these syllogisms, but what are, what are your thoughts here, Nick? Well, here, let me, let me, uh, let me help uh, Nick with, uh, with an example. Yeah. In the law, uh, what role does forgiveness play? I mean, I, it really, uh, for in, in, in a legal system, uh, for example, you could not have somebody who uh, murdered someone else appear in a trial and then have the judge uh, hear from the jury that the man was guilty. And then the judge says, you know what? I'm a Christian man, and I do agree that the, well, the jury is correct. This man is guilty. He's a murderer, but I forgive you. Uh, off you go. Now, that, that creates a problem. Forgiveness creates a problem at a certain point, uh, and, um, and Anselm himself takes this up uh, in why God became a man. He says, you know what? Uh, God can forgive anybody, anything, anytime, anywhere. He has the power to do it. Right. However, if he just goes in and willy-nilly forgives people, like a right. murderer in the middle of a, of, a, of a murder case, then what have you got? Well, then you, have, then you have the chaos of having absolutely no law, so that forgiveness itself creates a problem for the law if it is used to... Uh, completely, too holy, or too early in the process, or something like that. And so forgiveness itself has a problem. Um, God can't simply up and forgive everybody. If he did that, the whole world would go to hell. Don't you agree, Nick? <laughs> yeah, 
there's no place for forgiveness in the law is what it seems like. Uh, well, there's a little place. Uh, you, I think you'd agree with this. There's a little place for forgiveness. In fact, um, there, there are whole schools of, of thought in, uh, in lawyerly worlds that do discuss what it means to actually have a person who is a victim of a crime receive an apology for that particular crime. And an apology in a legal sense is a type of uh, uh, seeking forgiveness from the person that you've harmed. I apologize for what I've done. And when the person who has been harmed hears that, it actually makes a difference to them. Uh, it, it, it matters to them if somebody who has harmed them actually apologizes to them. And it seems to be as important to them as, for example, well, depending on exactly how terrible the crime is, but sometimes as important as having the person punished, say put in prison or something like that. And why do you suppose that is? There is a place in the law for apology and forgiveness or seeking forgiveness, but it can't be too huge or too big or overtake the whole thing. So there's a little place for it, but it has to, it has to stay within its limits or bounds. Uh, otherwise, it is viewed as an injustice. I well, think Nick, Nick and I, Nick, you know, tell me if this is true of your growing up uh, within the womb of the church. But the sermons that I would hear uh, as a young man with people like Al Rognes, um, uh, even my own father, um, I would say that this was a very much operating kind of understanding of the atonement in the proclamation. That is to say that um, given a courtroom setting, um, we are found guilty before God, who is the judge. And that Christ comes in to say, I will take John's place and put the, uh, the uh, penalty on me and, and so set John free from this. And so Christ intercedes for us is that mediator. And I think this uh, is part of what's going on in Anselm's, what he calls vicarious satisfaction. Uh, Nick, I interrupted you there. No, you're fine. Um, uh, yeah, so it seems like we're taking a nuanced approach to how forgiveness fits into the law, but it seems like Christ's actions in the overarching narrative of the gospel, uh, you know, this, the Christian story, original sin, and then reconciliation through Christ, forgiveness of sin, um, it seems like Christ's place is not terribly nuanced. Um, and in the worksheet, John, you were talking about um, why did Christ have to die? Well, perhaps to highlight the gravity of sin, that this isn't just something that God can uh, flippantly forgive. And Dr. Paulson, you said this as well, that God just can't up and forgive, but that his nature, the God or the law that has exuded from him uh, demands some sort of what we now 
call justice. Um, but that seems uh, somewhat restrictive against what Paul says. You know, when he says, uh, through Christ, we are fully free. <laughs> but then we also hear things like, now I'm a slave to Christ. You know, so we're almost freed from the law to come under the law again. And it's almost, um, I think this is, gets wrapped up in the church a lot too, with the idea of uh, Christian piety or a good Protestant work ethic. You know, these different things where we almost say our sins are forgiven. Now, how much harder can we work, you know, uh, with this new freedom that we've found? It, so that kind of seems to be a contradiction. In my mind, it almost seems like we're fully free or we still have these restrictions that cause us tension in our lives. I think you're right about that. And this, uh, this does uh, hit this matter. Um, could God just up and forgive? Uh, Anselm and everybody seems to agree, yes, he could. Why? Because he's above the law. And he can do anything he wants. He has the power to do it. But this old way of uh, preaching that John is uh, referring to uh, here, and that you're kind of musing about, Nick, regarding what the effect would be on, uh, on us as hearers and what our Christian life would look like. Everybody is afraid of what would happen if he just did that. And it was Anselm who said, the thing that we would lose if he just forgave everybody is that we would lose justice. Right. We would get justification, Nick. That's the term that Paul uses. And justification, as Paul uses it, is passive. It's completely free. Uh, and there isn't anything else added to it. Uh, and uh, that justification is, uh, Paul again says, comes by faith, not by works. But then you notice something. The old Roman teaching uh, that took place before the Reformation, before Luther, and of course continues in some ways up to the present, used to say it in Anselm's way, there has to be some sort of debt paid. Otherwise, we are going to be losing justice when we get justification, and we don't want to do that. And even after uh, Luther in the Reformation, there were whole groups of people who said, we're afraid that we're going to lose justice. Uh, that means people aren't going to try to do anything. It would be like uh, being uh, told that you are now going to be paid to stay home. Uh, and then uh, at the end of it, when you decide you're going to open up the society, uh, everybody says, well, I, uh, I'm not sure if I really want to go back to work since I... I enjoy being paid to stay at home. I'm not sure if this is going to work. Anselm is worried that that's the way Christians are going to take Paul's justification by faith alone. They got paid for staying home doing nothing, and now, after they got it, they aren't going to want to go to work. The Protestants later said, um, it is not the work that comes before the justification that matters. That was the old Roman way of speaking about repentance and what you owe and so on. But now they started to say, you have to supply it after you've gotten your justification. So your Christian life has to go to work. Otherwise, uh, you're going to have a work ethic. You learned all about this. 
Um, and uh, th this is, of course, especially associated with John Calvin for a reason. They're departing from Luther and Luther's close connection to the Apostle Paul here, not alone, but especially Paul, and they are trying to add justice to justification. Huh. And I hear this as a theologian, every time I open a theology book, I hear people say, justification is great, but what about justice? And you can either do it before you get to justification, the old Roman way, or you can tack it on afterward, the old uh, Protestant work ethic uh, way. And in both ways, you're going to end up with a uh, smelly soup that is not actually the freedom of a Christian. And uh, so we, we do have to come back uh, here to say, how would it be possible that you could actually forgive sin without then either demanding the law prior to it, uh, a true repentance, or without coming up with a work ethic after it, without somehow destroying what life in this world is actually all about? And that means without destroying justice itself, after all, that's what the whole legal system of the world is set up to preserve. And are we going to lose that uh, when we get Christ and his forgiveness? That really is the question of it all. Nick, do you, do you have a response to that? And, and then I have something I want to add on. I'm trying to think about it, and I'm trying not to get too philosophical either, because I feel like one question naturally leads to many others. John, why don't you go ahead and then I'll see. Well, what all this comes back to, I think, is, is the nature, how we understand the nature of God. And um, Steve, I'm going to talk about one of our beloved mentors, Gerhard Ferdy, here in just a second. But I think the sense of Christ paying the price of this needed, uh, needed out um, demand or necessary reason uh, for punishment for sin and taking sin seriously, which I think this interpretation uh, does more than the other two that we're going to be talking about. Um, we find in our time, particularly among feminist theologians and others in the more liberal stream of theology today saying, you know, isn't this just horrific that in the nature of God, we, we find this sense that he somehow could find um, any kind of joy or sense of satisfaction in the Son being crucified or put to death. So I'm going to read a little quote here from uh, Gerhard Ferdy, um, where Gerhard writes, Jesus dies for us, not some payment to God. There's not just a little perversity, says Gerhard, in the tendency to say that the sacrifice was demanded by God to placate his divine wrath. We attempt to exonerate ourselves from the terrible nature of the deed by blaming it on God. 
end quote. This is from his uh, Christian Dogmatics article on the work of Christ. Well, uh, Anselm's uh, theory that we're talking about uh, is trying to give a logical explanation for how Christ ended up on the cross by saying that God needed it. Now, uh, when you say that, that has a tremendous cost regarding what you actually then mean by Christian life or faith and so on. You're quite right about that. And so that's what we're getting at. Anselm actually uses two main illustrations for what he is trying to get at. You used one of them, uh, John which is that sin, when we sin, starting with Adam and Eve and continuing up to ourselves presently, what we are doing is disrupting distributive justice. And the way that Anselm illustrates it is to say that, that uh, our sin is a debt that we owe. He even is more graphic. He says, every time you sin, you steal something from God. And therefore, uh, this particular illustration is, uh, is a legal uh, understanding of what justice is between God and us as human beings. And it understands that God is a property owner. So this is property law. And when it's property law, it means that every time you sin, as Adam and Eve did in the garden, going against something uh, that God said, then what you are doing is actually robbing something of God's property. And when, when a robbery has taken place, justice has to be fulfilled. And how do you fulfill justice when a robbery has taken place? Nick, you can uh, you know this. That's a record you rectify the, the, the theft? I don't know. <laughs> like, give you know, it back? Pay something? Give it back. You, you have to pay it back. Uh, and if the payment back means that you are going to, uh, to restore stolen property. But now, uh, Anselm uh, stops here. And by the way, uh, I do recommend uh, this to all of you. Anselm's uh, little book, uh, Why God Became a Man, is actually a dialogue. And the dialogue is between <laughs> Anselm A and his, uh, his favorite student, whose name, uh, whose name is Bozo. Bozo. <laughs> uh, and so it's Anselm talking to Bozo, and he's getting Bozo to ask the right questions, and then Anselm is going to give the right question. Right but, answers. Nick, where do you see in this particular uh, illustration? Yeah, I'm the bozo. <laughs> you, are, you are our beloved bozo, who now is supposed to be uh, uh, learning exactly how this is going to work out. So I, as your Ansel, now turn to bozo and say, now bozo, when you steal something from God's property, what has to happen? You got to give it back. But here's the problem. Uh, even one little sin has stolen so much that you can't possibly uh, restore it. You have, in the meantime, destroyed it. It's like somebody uh, stealing your car and then running it around uh, 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 until it's all smashed up. Uh, and then you say, 
uh, well, uh, I'm sorry I did this. Here's your smashed up car back. Then the, uh, then the person says, well, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? It's a mess. Uh, and God then is supposed to say, uh, there's no way you can pay this debt. You have gone into credit card debt so deeply <laughs> that you can't possibly pay it off. Now, uh, Anselm says, what do we need in that circumstance? Yeah, you, you need something to fully repay the debt. And to Anselm, that's Christ. And to Anselm, that's Christ. So Christ is going to come in and uh, repay the debt. And when he repays the debt, justice will be restored. And then we will be back to what he considers to be the normal circumstance. That is, Christ has now repaid the debt uh, by dying on the cross. Or uh, more uh, precisely, he has paid the penalty for us. But you already know that there's a little bit of uh, funny business going on here. If somebody comes in uh, at the last minute and pays your debt, what do we suspect may very well happen after the debt has now been repaid when I didn't have to repay it? What do you suppose is likely to happen? You become reckless. Do it again. You become reckless. There is no, if you yourself didn't pay the penalty, this is the whole reason why you penalize people in the law so that they actually now will not recidivate, right? So that they won't go back and do it again. And in point of fact, Anselm has a real problem with this. He can't quite figure out how he's gonna keep people from doing it again. So this might be a good place to tie things up and of course uncle john dr paulson if you guys have more thoughts in my perspective i feel like anselm's theory has been flushed out pretty well through this discussion i have an additional thought uh and maybe we don't have time to actually talk about this much but it seems like anselm starts a little far down the line um in thinking that uh, God created everything, God owns everything, it's all God's property. <clears throat> and I think that's very true. But God also made us, you know, we're God's property, we're his creatures, our bodies are not our own, you know, they're his temple, there's all these different things. It, to me, there seems like there's some sort of burden that comes with just existing. And there's all this responsibility given to us not to sin, um, you know, to drive the car well, whatever the analogy is. Uh, that we did not give to ourselves, but almost that God put upon us. And this is kind of, I think, what we talked about even in the first uh, Dr. Van Patten uh, lecture, that it, it seems like God maybe created these circumstances where we could very easily commit sins and then puts the punishment on us when we inevitably do commit those sins, which to me kind of seems unfair. Well, uh, you are uh, making the, the, the correct observation as far as Anselm is concerned. And that is that human beings were created in the beginning to be responsible. Now, that was a term. I'm not quite sure if you said that, but that's, that's basically what you're saying. Adam and Eve are in the garden, uh, and they're given options. And then they're supposed to be responsible, right? You can eat from this tree, but you're not to eat from that tree now. 
uh, now will you use this responsibly? In which case, then what, what would be the core, the essence of a human being, starting with Adam and Eve? What would really make them human? What's the most important thing about a human being, uh, according to that understanding? It's logical. Would it be obedience? Well, uh, you are right. It would be obedience to the law through the power of free will. That is that I can do it or I cannot do it. And therefore, God is placing me in the garden or placing Adam and Eve in the garden for you to make a choice. Yes or no. For the law or against the law. With me or against me. And then the most important thing about me as a human being is my decision-making power, which is located for me in my free will. And then we can say, what makes me free? My willpower makes me free. But here's the problem with willpower. What is willpower? What does will do? Uh, when will wakes up in the morning, what does will want to do? Satisfy itself? Yes. Will wants to do what it wills. <laughs> it seeks to fulfill its will. That's what it wants to do. And Anselm is trying to say to you, that's what I mean by true freedom. When I became a monk, I made a free oath. And at that point, I became a free man because I bound myself to a law. Now, that's a strange way of talking about freedom. I bound myself or I enslaved myself or something like that. Now, in comes Luther. Luther says, that's not what makes you a human being at all. That's not what makes you a creature of God. It's not God planting you in a garden and telling you, here are two possibilities, A and B. If you choose A, you win. If you choose B, you lose. And now I'm going to, now I, big powerful God, I'm going to sit, sit, sit back and let you make the decision about this thing. And lo and behold, what happens? Adam and Eve make a bad decision. Then what happens after that? They have Cain and Abel. Then one after the other makes bad decisions. Now go all the way up to uh, uh, the 11th century with Abelard. How many people with their free will made a good decision rather than a bad decision? A great big nothing donut zero. Nobody used this. The Luther finally stops and says, my goodness, that's what free will amounts to. Not a single person made the right decision. Uh, but of course, this has absolutely nothing to do with what makes us truly human. Now go back to Paul. Paul says, justified by faith alone. Then he says, for freedom, Christ has set me free. What, what is my freedom for? So that I can go and make an oath as a monk uh, and then follow the law in that case? What's the freedom for? It's for freedom. Well, what's freedom then? Nick, freedom is not going to be the exercise of my free will for or against God's law. That's not what's going to determine who you are. And it's not actually what makes Christ Christ or God God or you you or the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ. 
and therefore none of this debt payment or substitutionary atonement theory or uh, you know uh, vicarious satisfaction none of these things tell you anything about what's really going on what makes you you freedom now what's freedom specifically freedom is for freedom it's not for something else so uh if freedom is the end thing then you can say it's not freedom for me to choose better the next time adam and eve chose badly now christ came on the cross paid the debt and then what am i supposed to do after he pays the debt nothing just live your life well that, you're too lutheran uh, anselm is going to say after christ paid the debt i now am going to have put in front of me the same uh, uh possibilities as adam and eve good or bad yes or no what am i supposed to do the second time around choose better yeah but paul knows better than that oh yeah luther knows better it's not just to just throw you back uh uh, into the uh, uh, original situation and for you to choose better the next time around, they already know what you're going to do if that's all you get. Uh, yeah. If you return um, to, uh, to, uh, to go uh, and you're asked not to make the same bad decision again, <clears throat> you'll go right back into it. But instead, freedom is what uh god is after in jesus christ and it's not freedom for you to choose properly it's freedom from something now you tell me what are you being freed from with christ on the cross being freed from the law so you're no longer having to be in that choosing scenario exactly now why is it so scary for somebody like abelard to be freed from the law because then there's nothing else to do. I don't know. You are you just kind of a floating atom at that point. I mean, A T O M, not A D A M. Actually, both of them would apply. Uh, <laughs> he would be very worried that the thing that he thinks has made his life into something valuable, which was taking the oath of becoming a monk, is now going to be taken away from him. And lo and behold, that's true. The oath of his monasticism is being taken away from him yeah. by God as a thing that makes him right. But now this is so frightening to a, a person who's good at the law. He's good at the law. He's good at making an oath and keeping it. What does he want on the final day when he's standing before the Lord? He, uh, he wants the Lord to say, wow, you had kind of a rough uh, start in life, but you really turned it around. Uh, and you really did well. You took your oath and you were faithful to your oath as a monk. Uh, why don't you come in? But instead, that's not what uh, God in Christ actually says on the final day. What does God in Christ actually say to you? Not uh, how well did you do as you, in your oath as a monk? What does, what does he say to you? Are you looking for well done, good and faithful servant? Or are you looking for you're freed through Christ? Either one of those is just fine. <laughs> he says, on account of my son, Jesus Christ, free. Uh, that is freed precisely from the law itself. And when you're free from the law itself, the first feeling that a person has who's good at the law is, what do I do now? Yeah. What's, the, what, what's my purpose in life? What's my direction? 
Where am I supposed to go? Aren't I supposed to be uh, trying to pursue justice in all things? Then what does the Christian say at that time? I would say the, the true Christian says, give it up. And I think that's why it's such an existential threat whenever we experience freedom, because it takes away our identity. Like the law is the only way we can measure how good we are or how bad we are, discern ourself, our ego from others. Uh, and when that's taken from us, we have no means by which to aggrandize our own position, you know, like build ourselves up, discern ourselves. And that's a threat until we come, we just accept that we can't do that. And then we find our identity in being God's creature. You are good. I have made you. And that's not really like a, a prestigious uh, in the world's terms identity, but it is a freeing identity because we no longer have to um, be chasing our own tail in something that leads nowhere. Okay, uh, Nick, you just made uh, the move from being a very good lawyer, which we want you to be, to being a preacher. There's the move. And this is uh, how it is uh, that you actually have gone beyond Anselm at this point. I, I think it's ironic that there are two things going on here, uh, rather self-contradictory. I think Anselm really wants to take sin seriously use the language of Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, that comes right out of our Lutheran liturgy, that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. And yet it gets into what you're talking about here, Steve, with kind of what ends up to be kind of after the vows are taken and coming up to St. Pete and saying, where's that merit badge? It becomes into kind of a merit badge system. And there gets to be kind of a celestial bookkeeping system that's going on. And uh, as one of my author friends, Kurt Vonnegut, would say in Slaughterhouse-Five, somewhere in all of this legal mess, uh, there is Christmas. And uh, so there is this taking sin seriously. And yet there is the wonder I would like to get to how uh, a wonderful hymn uh, from the service book and hymnal uh, from years ago, gets at this uh, titled uh, Victim Divine, The Grace We Claim. And it says, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. And uh, also uh, in the hymn that I just quoted, uh, We need not go up to heaven to bring a long sought Savior down. And so it is that uh, Christ comes to us. And I would like to conclude with this question that we talked about last time. And that is, how in this Anselmian kind of objective, um, rather heavy legal uh, system of transactions and such, how do, how do, the, how do the benefits of Christ and his death on the cross translate to us. And we talked about this last time. How does it come from Christ's death on the cross that we, some 2,000 years later, benefit from Christ's death and resurrection? Well, that's, uh, that, that, that is a good way to end, and it's a good way to uh, think about uh, the next uh, podcast. Yeah. Because uh, here, 
at the very least, we already heard uh, it, it when uh, uh, Nick was uh, was uh, going through the steps of what freedom actually means to a Christian. Uh, it's not enough uh, to say that the benefit of Christ is that he paid a debt. He certainly can be said to have paid a debt. That's certainly the case. And it's certainly also the case that he can be said to have paid our penalty. That is also true. But here, what uh, Nick is pointing out regarding what true freedom means, which means even freedom from the law, it's not enough to say that the benefit of Christ is that he restored the law, that he brought us back uh, to go, that he brought us back to the same place that Adam and Eve were in before they sinned. That is not enough. Because if any of us are brought back to that and then left to our own devices regarding a free will, we will end up in the same ditch that everybody else ended up. And Christ knows that, and he is actually going to bring us out of that all together. And the way he does it is actually create a new kingdom, a new world, and he does it by saying his word, which is a word of forgiveness that does not care any longer, that you are going to be worried that when he forgives you, that you might go back and recidivate or do the same thing because he now is going to be in charge and he is going to make you a new creature. Uh, and he's not going to make you a creature by giving you a free will that, that is supposed to be um, responsible. That is only what happens in this old world uh, and in a court with a, with a lawyer. But uh, in the new world, you're going to be set free from that. And that's going to be our great gift. So Jesus pays the price. He pays the penalty. But he does something much more. And this is the way uh, Paul puts it in all of his letters, Galatians and Romans in particular. He not only took our penalty, but he took our sin. Those are different things. And uh, there is no other person that can take your sin, certainly not in the way that Jesus did, uh, and defeat it once and for all. Once he does that, he's also now put the law to an end. And that uh, can take us into these other uh, theories, all of which are theories of law, by the way. This is not the only one that is a legal theory. All of the theories are law, and you'll have to find uh, your way free of them. Um, but, uh, Nick, you found the way to do that. It is actually to set them free from the law. So freedom, Christ has set us free. Yeah. It reminds me of the old poem by uh, John Donne about uh, Christ putting death to death on the cross, uh, death undone. And um, so. He puts death to death. He does the law to the law. Yeah. He debts debt. Uh, he, he, all of these things are, are accurate. Once you learn how to actually uh, overcome the assumptions of justice and you enter into the great new world of justification. I want to just close on this note, too, um, with regard to one word or I should say a prepositional phrase that I find 
in the Greek as well as English of, uh, of St. Paul, and that is that we are in Christo, that we are in Christ. And it is this alien righteousness that we are enfolded in, in the righteousness of Christ as his people, that we are set free, that death and the grave are behind us, and we are set free with a sense of hope and newness to look now into the future. Well, thank you, Dr. Paulson, and thank you, Nick. And next time we'll talk uh, a bit about the what's called the subjective or humanistic view of the atonement. And uh, we'll bring in some hopefully really racy stories from Dr. Paulson about Eloise and Peter Applard. <laughs> yes, but we're going to lose our bozo. So to our bozo, Nick, I am so grateful. Uh, and we have to say so long for now. Uh, but you're going to have a much better role to play uh, next time with Abelard, all right? Sounds great. <laughs> That's great.